Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. Today, my guest is Christopher Coker, director of the London School of Economics Foreign Policy Think Tank, LSE Ideas. He was professor of international relations at the London School of Economics, retiring in 2019. He is a former twice-serving member of the Council of the Royal United Services Institute, a former NATO fellow and a regular lecturer at defense colleges in the United Kingdom, United States, Rome, Singapore, Tokyo, Norway, and Sweden. Today, we will be discussing his 2019 book, The Rise of the Civilizational State. Professor Coker, welcome to the program. Thank you. Yeah, we usually like to start off with uh, the guests kind of telling us about their background and how they got involved in this current project. Right. Well, I, 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 I studied history um, at Cambridge when I was an undergraduate. Um, then I came to the LSE in 1982, where I stayed, in, as you said, until 2019 to take over uh, LSE Ideas, which is indeed our, our foreign policy think tank. And during those 40 years, I spent most of my time talking about and writing about war. Uh, war and Modern Consciousness. I wrote a book called War and the Illiberal Conscience. I looked at the warrior ethos. So I was particularly interested in the ideational side of war, um, what you might call its phenomenology. So this book on the civilization state was something of a departure, but the nation state was the chief reference point for war in the last 200 years. And so I was intrigued to ask myself the question, is the civilizational state likely to be a reference point for another war between the great powers? That's very interesting. And uh, perhaps we could get into a brief discussion about what is the civilizational state, or maybe even maybe begin off with what is a civilization? I know you spend a little bit in the beginning of the book explaining that with uh, references to Oswald Spengler and Arnold Toynbee. Well, a civilization is a word, of course, that anthropologists don't like like to use any more than they like the word tribe, but we don't need to worry about the anthropologists because historians love the word civilization and they write about it all the time. Uh, Civilization is essentially a style of life. uh, So you can define it by the architectural styles, the Baroque or the Rococo, for example, the classical Greek, these are definingly Western. You can uh, define a civilization by uh, its, um, uh, its, its, its practices, its uh, procedures, like international law, for example, which was a European invention in the 18th century that was later exported to the rest of the world. But above all, um, I think a civilization has a governing principle, an idea of what it's there to achieve in life. Uh, it's about its value system to a very large extent. And so... When we think of Western civilization, we might think of the social contract, uh, which has been a dominant idea in political philosophy in the Western world since the 17th century. And I think is is very, uh, again, can be said is definingly 
Western. So what is a civilizational state? Well, I often quote the words of a book by a writer, Jacques Bainville, called The History of France, in which he says in his opening sentence, France is neither an empire nor a race. It is better. It is a nation. The nation state is an idea that again was Western, uh, definingly Western, that goes back uh, to the 14th and 15th centuries. The first nation state in Europe was England. The second was France. The two countries might dispute the precedence here, but they were by undoubtedly the first uh, nation states. What makes Russia and China, that are the two principal civilization states in the world today, different, is that Russia has always been an empire. Um, it's still struggling to become a nation state, um, and it's possibly embracing a different identity, that of a civilization state, which is effectively an empire in all but name. So um, I remember the words of uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn 30 years ago when he said that the Ukraine is ours. And Kazakhstan is ours, but Turkmenistan isn't ours. Russia cannot see its identity without Ukraine and without Kazakhstan. That makes it very distinctive from, say, uh, England in the United Kingdom, which did not absorb a Scottish identity any more than the Scots uh, absorbed English identity. And when they came together as a union in 1707, they maintained distinctive identities. So England can survive the collapse of the the United Kingdom, were Scotland to become independent. Uh, Russia cannot survive the loss of Ukraine, um, to a lesser extent, uh, Kazakhstan, and therefore it wants a privileged relationship with Ukraine uh, as part of the Russian world. So Russia is an empire still calling itself a civilization state, and China is a race. It's the home of the Han Chinese. Uh, in reality, there are 57 different ethnic groups in China. But the extraordinary thing is that they have all been persuaded that they are Han Chinese. And the only two exceptions to this are the Tibetans and the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, about whose fate we read uh, constantly. Tibet, because of its religious identity, which makes it difficult, if not impossible, for Tibetans to become Han Chinese in their own imagination. And the Uyghurs uh, in Xinjiang, who, because they are Muslims and part of a, the Ummah, a Muslim community, uh, would also find it very different, difficult to become a Han Chinese. So there's no single definition of a civilization state. Uh, if you are Al-Qaeda or ISIS, uh, it's the caliphate, it's the uh, great empire that once stretched from Iraq to Spain, the wish to regain that empire. If you're Chinese, it's a value system, uh, which is basically as Confucian, with a touch, a very important touch of socialism or capitalism. If you're Russian, you either see yourself as European uh, or you see yourself as Eurasian. Uh, half European and half Asian, which of course makes you unique. And finally, there of course, there are other countries that uh, might stake a claim to being civilizational states. The principal one is Narendra Modi's uh, uh, India, um, which uh, would like to see itself as a Hindu uh, state with a significant Muslim uh, minority, uh, Muslims being citizens in sufferance, a kind of Hindu Pakistan. And that of course is a nightmare for those liberals uh, who want India to remain the nation state that it became when it got its independence from Britain in 1947. For them, a civilization state is, of course, to sell out on liberalism and democracy, since I don't think a civilization state anywhere in the world can be democratic or can be liberal.
The bottom line, anyway, oh. uh, if you if you ask me to sum it up, is that how does a civilization state differ from a nation state? Uh, it is older than a nation state. Uh, obviously, the Chinese say they're 5,000 years old. In fact, historically, they're 4,000. Uh, the Russians would claim to go back to the, not to Peter the Great, not to Europeanization, but to the Tatar uh, influence uh, back in the uh, 12th and 13th centuries. And the civilizational state would say we are greater than a nation state. We are more privileged than a nation state. So the rules that apply to nation states, in particular international law, are not rules that necessarily apply to us. That's very fascinating. Now, of course, you probably have gotten comparisons to Samuel P. Huntington's famous or infamous clash of civilizations thesis. How would you relate your concept of the civilizational state to his concept? And I know, for example, he kind of based his analysis on, you know, nation states trying to identify themselves as civilizations, whereas you're kind of doing a different nuance of this is a different type of state that's, you know, relating itself to civilizations. Yes, uh, there are certain countries that are civilizations uh, geographically uh, and culturally. Japan is one, India is another, uh, China is a third, Russia is mm, possibly a fourth. Uh, but of course, when we talk about Western civilization and we talk of it as a political unit, uh, or what um, uh, uh, Donald Tusk, who used to, of course, be a very important European Union uh, commissioner said uh, it's a political civilization. The West is is Japan, is, is is Europe, is the United States, is Australia, is New Zealand. It's a political civilization. It's a liberal international order. So in that way, it is distinctive geographically and culturally from the others that I've mentioned. But since you mentioned uh, Samuel Huntingdon, I've, I've always thought Samuel Huntingdon has received a bad press. I mean, his book survived in a way that Francis Fukuyama's end of history has not survived. So it's a book which we still go back to. It's been translated into 60 different languages. And what he was saying essentially is that, look, um, the West, the world is not going to become Western. The West will have to coexist with other civilizations, with their own distinctive ideas about their own future. He was a great critic of liberal internationalism, which I think has finally perished uh, in the debacle in Afghanistan. So he was totally against regime change, and democracy promotion. He was in favor of what uh, we now call value pluralism. In other words, he did not believe that Western values were superior to those of the non-Western world, and nor did he believe that they were universal values. Uh, he believed that the world would be uh, made up of different value systems. Many, of course, those values they would hold in common, but some values would be different. Where he made a great mistake was suggesting that civilizations have political identities and a political consciousness, which is nonsense. They don't. States have a political identity and consciousness. And it's the Chinese state and the Russian state and the Japanese state that we should be interested in. But I think had he lived uh, longer, uh, he might have said that civilizational states may well conflict with each other. And indeed, we see that uh, the possibility of great power war is once again on the table. And the great powers we're talking about are the civilizations, the West as a political civilization versus Russia and, and China. And the smaller powers that claim to be civilizational states or that might make that claim, like Erdogan's Turkey, possibly, but I don't think Iran, Iran's an interesting case actually uh, of an Islamic Republic that doesn't claim to be an Iranian civilization state. Yeah. How would the there are other countries out there, medium powers, smaller powers that yeah. may also- How would the Taliban uh, relate to this concept? 
Well, uh, the Taliban uh, would not be, <laughs> would not see Afghanistan as a civilizational state. They would see it very much in ethnic uh, terms, not even in national terms. I don't think the Taliban probably like see tribal terms, as a nation state, quite frankly, but as as as, as a kind of tribal community uh, mm -hmm. that's managed to hang together since the days uh, Alexander the Great was the only conqueror who conquered Afghanistan, but um, a community that that survives, neither a nation state nor something that is specifically Afghanistan, which is why it's also always resisted any attempts at nation building uh, or being molded in the in the model of what other countries would want it to be. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, it's not a nation state in the sense that we in the West would see, but more like a, like a tri like a pan tribal uh, state with a religious, with a strong religious element. Yes, but not interested in exporting the religious message either. Yeah. So they're not actually classic fundamentalists in the form that we understand Al Qaeda or, or ISIS to be. In fact, the first thing they did was to execute the ISIS leader in Afghanistan to make a deal with the Chinese on the Uyghurs. So they are not in any way supportive of the fate of the Uyghurs and to do a deal with the Russians on the Islamic uh, jihadists in the Transcaucasus. So they just want to be left alone and get on with their own life as best they can. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, now, you kind of touched on each of the different contexts of the civilizational states that you mentioned, perhaps we could go into a little bit more detail. Like, for example, Russia. You said that Russia cannot do without uh, Ukraine, and it kind of extends its uh, lineage back to the 1200s. Uh, personally, I would probably say even back to maybe 988 when uh, Vladimir, uh, Prince Vladimir, converted to Orthodoxy. That's like the foundation, the ancient mm -hmm. uh, Kievan Rus as the foundation of the Russian uh, civilization, as many uh, Russian thinkers would put it. But uh, you said uh, Russia cannot do without Ukraine. Could you expand no, on that? I, I would agree. Well, let me just say that. I, I, what are the, the distinctive features of Russia as a civilization state? I mean, orthodoxy, you've touched upon already. Putin has made it very clear that uh, Russia is not a uh, Christian state as such. 40% uh, uh, of its population is non-Christian in one form or another. But the orthodox church is very important in terms of Christian values, which he claims that uh, Europeans uh, are not willing to defend. Um, he, he claims, secondly, that Russia is, uh, is either a European uh, state, um, but he is by definition a Europhile, his second language is German, that's his background, he comes from St. Petersburg, the most European-oriented of all Russian cities, but uh, it's an illiberal uh, European state, so it does not buy into the value system of the European Union, for example, could never aspire to become a member of the European Union. However, there are people around uh, Putin who claim that it's not European, it's Eurasian. Uh, and people like uh, members of the Izborsk Club, for example, which is a nationalist club, talk about how Russia is genetically uh, Asian, not European, that it is the heir of the Tatar, 300-year occupation by the Tatars, that it has a genetic inheritance uh, from um, the Tatar period of its history. So there's no orthodoxy here on what makes Russia a civilizational state, but you can see that the language is very different. It's cosmopolitan is not there. Uh, genetics is very much uh, there. Uh, history is also extremely important. So um, the textbooks have been rewritten to remove what 
Marxists used to call internal contradictions in the story of, of Russian history. Um, the fellow who runs the Russian Historical Association is the former head of the Russian Intelligence uh, Network. It's not surprisingly. So they, there's a version of Russian history, uh, which is taught now to a generation of young uh, school kids. And even in Russia, there is a, uh, in the Russian military, there is the idea of a spiritual unity of the Russian people. But the army is there for two purposes. One, to maintain that spiritual unity, which is a term, of course, that's totally foreign to a Western audience, and also to correct historical mistakes. Um, those historical mistakes uh, include the loss of Crimea. That, of course, mistake was corrected in 2014 with the occupation of Crimea. But another historical mistake was the loss of the Baltic states as well, and certainly the loss of Ukraine. And these may be corrected at some point. So that, I think, is what makes Russia distinctively civilizational. It's interesting that they talk about that, that they have a right to intervene in their neighboring, in their neighborhood. Uh, which is often called the near abroad, because as President Medvedev said when he was briefly president of the Russian Federation, we have a zone of privileged civilizational interest in that region. So he's not talking about the classic spheres of influence, uh, which delineated the European powers at the end of the 19th century when they divided the world up between them. He's talking about civilizational uh, spheres of interest. And I think that is meant to legitimize uh, Russian intervention. Um, if we're looking at China, we're looking at uh, Confucianism, uh, which, of course, was derided by Mao Zedong, but which is now back in favor. So Confucian textbooks are now part of the syllabus in schools. Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader, pays his respects by visiting uh, Confucius' birthplace every year. There are Confucian concepts now that have been introduced into Chinese foreign policy, like uh, the idea of a harmonious world. There's also the importance of history, the patriotic history courses that are now teach young, uh, and young the next generation of young Chinese that the 19th century was the century of humiliation. Um, and it's very important to understand why it was the century of humiliation, not because China was defeated in two wars. China has been defeated many times in its 4,000 year history. In fact, there have been two non-Chinese dynasties, including the last dynasty that was in fact Manchu and not Chinese. But these dynasties, these conquerors became Chinese. They integrated, uh, they were won over by the superiority of Chinese civilization. The problem with the Europeans in the 19th century was they refused to become Chinese. They did not respect Chinese civilization. They said because they'd had the enlightenment and the industrial revolution, they were far superior to the Chinese. It's the first time in, in, in two or 3000 years of Chinese history that people came along uh, didn't conquer them, but defeated them and said, we're not, not interested in becoming Han Chinese. The nomads who came across the Great Wall of China on horseback became Chinese. The nomads who came by sea didn't. And this is a message that China is very keen to get across. And finally, there's this idea of value pluralism, uh, that uh, human rights and the rule of law are fine for the West because they are part of the Western value system. They're grounded in Western history, but they're culture specific. They do not apply to other civilizations and certainly not to the oldest surviving civilization on the planet, which is, is China. And, and finally, let me just say something about the Islamic State, which no longer exists except in small little groups. But the Islamic State tried to create the caliphate in 2015. 
And the caliphate is an implicit criticism of the nation state. The attempt by Arabs at the, in the 1960s uh, and the 1950s in emancipating themselves from European colonialism to create European style nation states. That for them is an abomination. The nation state is un-Islamic. The caliphate is what it's all about. But there is a significant difference, and I'll conclude on this now, between Al-Qaeda and ISIS. For bin Laden, and I still think for Al-Qaeda in general, the caliphate is an aspiration. It's something that will never be realized in your lifetime, but it's something for which you must fight. ISIS made the great mistake of saying it wasn't a dream. It was real. It could be realized. And tried, they tried to realize it uh, by creating uh, a state um, in Iraq and parts of Syria. And of course, the problem with creating a state is that you can destroy it uh, quite easily, as the Americans and their allies actually did. You cannot destroy dreams. You can't stop people dreaming about the reemergence of the caliphate, but you can knock down any caliphate that claims to be territorial. And that's a mistake I think that they will probably try to avoid in future. That's very fascinating. Um, so what are kind of like the geopolitics of the present and the near future that uh, have relationship to the civilizational state that you see, especially like uh, how can the European Union or the United States uh, deal with them? Well, uh, I think we are looking at, are we not the end of that Western moment in history, uh, which definitely came to an end, I think, in Afghanistan uh, a few months ago. Uh, the end of liberal internationalism, the end of regime change, the end of nation building, the end of Wilsonianism, the idea of making the world safe for democracy. These have been American objectives. Not every administration has held them, but most administrations have. That's the end of that moment. So that's the first context for, for the civilizational state. So the next question is, is there a new world order struggling to be born? which most, uh, I think, analysts would say is, is definitely the case. Uh, there is a new world order struggling to be born. And will the civilizational state uh, be part of it? And this depends very much on what you think the civilizational state is there for. Is it just a ploy by authoritarian regimes to legitimize their practices and to revise uh, treaties uh, and orders that they don't like? Or is it um, a uh, right, uh, rightful attack on the idea of Western exceptionalism, the idea that the West got to the future first and has a right to dictate the future of other societies. Are they interested in dialogue or are they not interested in dialogue? Is the West interested in dialogue? And above all, are we moving to what uh, Ian Bremmer, uh, the uh, president of the Eurasia Foundation, calls a G0 world? That's a world in which there are no rules, uh, there are no agreed values, there's no international consensus about global questions like climate change or human rights. Um, well, basically in which everyone does what they want to do. And I mentioned climate change, and that I think must be one of the challenges about the rise of the civilizational state because we saw it in Glasgow uh, last week. Uh, we are seeing the emergence now of two different blocks uh, a 2050 net zero club, uh, that is uh, countries like Japan, uh, the European Union and the United States that are aiming for zero carbon emissions by 2050 and a 2060 uh, net zero club uh, led by China and Russia that did not attend the Glasgow meeting uh, and of course Saudi Arabia that did attend it 
but is also committed to uh, reducing carbon emissions by 2060 and not 2050. So even in something that is of universal importance to the world, you can see that blocks are emerging and that they're beginning to emerge. The reference point is not the nation state and it's not an ideology like communism or liberalism. There are, there's no ideological divide about how to deal with climate change, but there seems to be a civilizational divide, uh, a group of countries that are coming together against the Western consensus. Uh, do you have any other concluding thoughts on this matter uh, that you wish to bring forward? Uh, those are actually my, 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 my concluding thoughts. They are, they are questions that I raise. They're not uh, actually answers because I don't think we're in a position to come up with those answers. I've not yet resolved in my own mind whether the civilizational state is something in which someone like Xi Jinping and Putin genuinely believe uh, or whether it's something that they find very useful uh, as a uh, to beat the West with uh, from time to time, and also to um, proclaim their uh, superiority to the old nation states that have been around for some time. Uh, these, I think, are, are questions. Uh, they're not answers, but they're questions we, we should pose. Thank you. This has been a very fascinating interview. Uh, what are you working on now? Well, I, the book I wrote after the civilization state was called very bluntly, Why War? It was looking at why we've had war for the last uh, 7,000 years, perhaps even longer. Uh, it was based on um, uh, an idea by a, a Nobel Prize winning uh, biologist, uh, Nicholas Tinbergen, uh, won the Nobel Prize in 1973 to say that any behavioral activity by any animal species, human or non-human, uh, is defined in four ways. One, by its biological origins, why we do it biologically. Secondly, by its cultural mechanisms, which sustain it, such as literature, film, uh, war games these days, uh, and computers. By its history, which he called ontogeny, that's what biologists mean by history. Um, and finally, by its functions and how it, how it uh, plays to our to the emotional uh, regimes that uh, define us as a species. So, for example, we're the only species that produces psychopaths and serial killers. No other species actually does. But we're also the only species that we know of in which people are willing to die, not for their kinship group, but for a principle, for an idea, for a group of people. We call it the Band of Brothers. I'm trying to extend that uh, into another book, which I've almost finished, called Thinking About War, because I don't think we've thought about it uh, as much as we should have done, which is why we're now talking about, unfortunately, the return of great power war, uh, just as we thought we put it behind us, we haven't. And I'm looking at why we should think about war, how we should think about it, what we should think about it, but also who may be thinking for us. And that includes the machines and artificial intelligence that have it, may have its own ideas about war. But anyway, I'm still interested in Western civilization um, and whether in an age of cancel culture and no platforming, uh, the West has actually the self-belief in its civilizational values, which I think are distinctive, not superior, but distinctive to the West, um, whether it's willing to defend those at home, let alone against uh, other countries that might uh, challenge them for their own reasons. So conflict still remains, as it always has in my last 44 years of uh, teaching and writing, remains for me uh, of, most, of most interest. That's very fascinating. Maybe we'll bring you back onto the podcast and you can talk about your uh, other books that you've been Absolutely. working on. Absolutely. Happy to do so. Yes. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Professor Cocker, for joining us on the New Books Network. Uh, this has been your host, Stephen Sakevich, and we'll see you next time.